Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Tuesday, November the 16th, and we gather around the inspired and true Word of God and the Word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We continue to take a step back this week as we stop to pray, to pray the Psalms in Psalm 14. What we've been doing is in between books, we'll go through some Psalms because if you're anything like me, I'm not good at praying. And so we take a stop, we end up praying and listen to the words of the Lord and the Holy Spirit leads us and ultimately shows us Christ. This Psalm starts with, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, there is none who does good. David really levels the playing field for all people, which is always good for us to understand when we look at sin, look at ourselves, so we don't become a Pharisee. Well, at the same time, it reminds us that all, what we need in anything to be good is something from outside of us to fill us with righteousness, which we know we have in Christ. David gives us this realistic prayer today so that we are able to focus our eyes back on him. For the gifts are ready, ready for you. Special thanks for our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we welcome Pastor Paul Kane of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Wyoming, and also serves as the first vice president of the Wyoming District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Kane, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you very much. Howdy from Wyoming. It's great to be here. So, Pastor, you've, you've been on Thy Strong Word and KFUO for a number of years, but this is our first time together. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and the work of the saints at Emmanuel? Certainly. I'm originally from Nebraska, as is my wife, Anne. We've been married 24 years. I've been a pastor 21 years, all of that in the Wyoming district of the LCMS. I've served three different parishes. And I've been at my current call for 12 and a half wonderful years. Sheridan, Wyoming is uh, just off of I-90, 20 miles south of Montana. And we've got mountains right in the back door. Lots of wonderful hunting opportunities, hiking opportunities. We've got cowboys, we've got music, we've got art. And it's a wonderful place to live. The congregation has a really long history, at least by Wyoming standards. The congregation was organized in 1903 around three different groups of Lutherans that found one another out here on the frontier after the Indian Wars. Um, the cowboy preacher was the guy who got things started around here in 1893. We think that he met Buffalo Bill by staying at his hotel overnight. We think he was worried about getting on a stagecoach because he might have been uh, robbed by Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But things are a lot more calm now. Uh, Sheridan is known for rodeo. It's a popular relocation spot post-COVID. And they have a new event called Ski Joring, which is basically a winter rodeo. Imagine, if you will, a rider on a horse towing a skier down a street that's covered with snow for the best time and to make sure that they go through all of the 
specific things that the event requires. It's pretty crazy. It's really fun to watch. And uh, you forget your cold. You're having so much fun. The <laughs> congregation is blessed with lots of active men and women. Um, I could brag about our, our trustees and our elders and our evangelism teams, but uh, we're very welcoming and friendly, especially to military families that tend to uh, relocate here. Our ladies are very focused on mission and like the men are very generous with their donations. The LWML has their mite boxes, but our men have little mighty mite cans that are little converted paint cans. Oh, so it's a rare day when we don't have some of the saints very busy around the church and the school. It's not every day you hear of a hundred year old church in 2003 doing something new, but our congregation started a school. We had one back in the 1920s that was technically illegal because it was in German. But since 2003, we've been blessed with Martin Luther Grammar School. We focus on kindergarten through fifth grade. Sometimes we have upper grades and we do partner uh, with Wittenberg Academy for upper grades in high school. I've been blessed to be the headmaster and uh, Pastor Castellero, he's our upper grades teacher. A graduate of the Fort Wayne Seminary. We've been blessed to have him for four and a half years. Thank you for all that. I I had a hard time listening after the ski joring and trying to think about <laughs> I bet we could do that here in Minnesota as I was thinking about time. So um everything's in a context. You 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 kinda you you you're formed by those who are around you. And I think I could get formed by that. I could do some skiing on the road and, and snow. I think I could do this. Yeah. Yeah. It, anything else you want to highlight? What's that? Watch out for the mailboxes. That's true. Yeah. Well, it's a reminder for, for you, our listeners, to continue to pray for our churches in all areas and contexts. That's one of the great joys of being on KFUO is that I talked to pastors uh, last week, was in New York, um, North Dakota, and today in Wyoming, um, in Colorado yesterday, excuse me. And so all of this brings us the same, the same Lord, the same gospel. Some are skiing on the roads and some are not. And, but it's the same Lord Jesus Christ that we focus our eyes on today. So pastor, as we are to dig into Psalm 14, we're going to begin by praying Psalm 14 and I will read it, but I invite you, our listeners to see this as an opportunity for prayer. Um, because when we have the Psalms, not only are the Holy Spirit fills us, but it was David praying and, and, and singing and an opportunity to give our requests to the Lord and for him to guide our prayers, to give us the words that we need in order to pray. So let us begin our time in prayer. Psalm 14, as David prays. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They've all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord Yahweh? There are they in the great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord Yahweh is his refuge. 
Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. So, Pastor, as we look at Psalm 14, what, how do you want to introduce maybe major themes or background of what we have with this blessed psalm? I love the emphasis on prayer in your study of the Psalms. It gives us the opportunity to pray for those who have fallen away from the church. That's really a burden on a lot of pastors' hearts and minds, as well as the families who don't get to sit together on Sunday mornings. It's an opportunity to pray for those who are really struggling with the current culture that we find ourselves in, uh, in the U.S., in some of our local communities and around the world, that it takes such exception at the clear words and will of God, even contradicting the, the commandments uh, very, very clearly. It's an opportunity to put ourselves in the place of somebody who might be hearing this from a place where they're doubting. They don't have faith in Christ, and it's our opportunity to proclaim the law and the gospel to them. Taking a look at the structure, Psalm 14 is really short. There are seven verses, and there's a lot packed into these verses. Plus, I'd like to do a side trip to uh, Romans when we get to a certain point. But take a look in your Bibles if you have uh, the ability to have one in front of you. Don't do this while you're driving. Please note that each of the verses, with the exception of five and six, are three lines. There's three lines we're, we're really used to in Hebrew um, poetry of talking about parallel lines, and we're used to two. Well, you still get that with five and with verse six, but all the other verses in 14 have three lines which add to the vivid imagery of how fallen humanity is. And that too is a challenge, not just to uh, American culture in general, but to the American flavor of uh, evangelical Christianity that sometimes allows for the human being to do more than Scripture does. And so what would you say, and what did you find, <clears throat> why five and six have only two and the rest have three? Is that an emphasis? Five and six is a certain kind of emphasis to this kind of poetic um, language or language, uh, writing, or how would you, did you find anything on that? I really think that it highlights that the Lord will act, uh, especially in his time, in his season, God is going to act on behalf of the poor, for example, here, and he will deal with the righteous according to his grace and mercy, even those um, who do not hear, I'm sorry, even those who uh, have not yet heard, the Lord is gracious and merciful and patient, so that in due season, we pray they will hear and not reject. And that's very helpful because I've seen this psalm be used as more of a mocking those who are not in the faith. 
um, not as a uh, look to mercy and the patience of God and also to us. And that's why it's really good to look at verses five and six with that kind of context, because we can just read verse one and say, yeah, they're fools. They have April Fool's Day. Um, therefore, we kind of dismiss them. But how you highlight it so beautifully is that we grieve those who are not in the faith in our families, maybe who used to be associated with our church. And, and why is this an important psalm as we grieve those who have walked away from the Lord or have not yet heard yet? We need psalms of lament. This is one of those. We sometimes just need to lament and feel over the breakdown of law and order. People uh, noted that over the last few years in America, in some of our cities, and in a lesser uh, way to even some of our more rural places like Wyoming. We had folks touring and generating some protests even here. Not everything in the Christian life is happy clappy. And I don't think we do ourselves a service in the church if we only have upbeat music and ignore Psalms of Lament like 14 and misunderstand the music that so often accompanies Advent and Lent as seasons of repentance to prepare for the more famous holidays of, of Christmas and Easter. We need music in a minor key. We need something like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, as we express our anticipation, our hope, but our very real need for a Savior. I really think Psalm 14 gets that across by showing how lost we are, how dead we are in our trespasses and sins. I don't want to be crass, but I want to present um, just a little visual imagery that I think we can all understand. Being there in the narthex of a church during a viewing the night before or the morning of a funeral, and someone we love, we miss, we spent a whole lot of time is lying there in that box. That person can do nothing to just wake up, sit up, and get out of that box. We need to comprehend that being dead in our trespasses and sins, being enemies of God, being corrupt, abominable, uh, as one who cannot do good according to our sinful human nature, we are just as dead spiritually as, as our loved one on their funeral day. So let's dig in with that in mind, because that, that definitely gives us this the joy of lament, if I can say it that, or maybe the peace of lament. Yes. That's what allows us to be able to do that. So we'll start in verse, just with verse one. Reminder to our listeners, we'll be reading and praying from uh, the English Standard Version of Psalm 14, a psalm of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, I feel, Pastor, as you said, this is a short psalm, but this psalm right here, we have a lot of teaching opportunities in this one psalm. How would you start? I would start simply with 
recognizing honestly how harsh the language sounds. We're calling those who say in his heart, there is no God, maybe not out loud, maybe just in a private moment, a fool. And we think of fools uh, like court jesters. We may think of April 1st and All Fools Day, and we may be tempted to mock those who doubt the existence of God. But that doesn't really help us in our hearts and minds or our lips as we try to reach out to them with the good news about faith in Christ, about the gift of the forgiveness of sins, of heaven, of eternal life. For me, the mocking goes aside because, well, I guess I've seen a thing or two. There are a lot of different groups in Wyoming religiously, but one of the biggest ones are the Mormons. That's the, the nickname, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I found it works a lot better in talking to them or talking with atheists, self-described, by asking them what they do believe in and going on from there. If somebody says in his heart, there is no God, well, by definition, yeah, that would be an atheist. But many folks that we may run across in our circle of friends or um, some workplaces or schools or in our culture and community, they may say that they're atheists, but they're actually more agnostic. Um, I've also found it's, it's interesting to meet some of these people and actually have an honest conversation with them where you can be vulnerable, they can be vulnerable, and we're still being faithful to our Christian confession, but drawing them out and asking them why they doubt God. It turns out many people are actually angry at the God they don't say they believe in. So they're saying there is no God is a reaction to them for something in their life where they really, really got hurt. A completely different but related situation are those who are sad at God. They, they want to believe, perhaps they used to believe and be active, but they feel very, very beat down. And maybe they were misunderstanding prayer like a vending machine. I put in my prayers, I press the right buttons, and I get what I want because, well, that's what the preacher on TV told me. I think some of the media preachers are very, very cruel in treating prayer that way and treating faith as something that we work up in ourselves rather than a gift for God. So rather than mocking, I urge an approach of lament. I urge an approach of openness so we can have conversation with these folks. The language is brutal. The word is fool. It's the same kind of language you'll find in old Job chapter two, where Job is saying that his wife is talking like one of these fools in, um, in what she's urging him to do and say about God. But we realize with the rest of verse one, sin corrupts. And as sinners 
we sin. Original sin often has its way with us, and we commit our actual sins. If you're looking for something good in this world, it has to come from God. It's not going to come from my heart. As Jesus reminds us in Matthew, out of the heart come all of those sins. No wonder we have verses from that section that support the small catechism's explanation of almost every single commandment on the second table. So pastors, we hear this, as I mentioned before, it really lays the groundwork of patience and compassion upon those who are involved, because we don't want to start with saying that you are a fool and <laughs> the language is, is very strong. And he ends in a way that I would say levels the playing field. There is none that is good. Um, why is that an important piece of verse one? as we speak about a, 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 even someone who's agnostic, as, as we speak to them and how we witness to them or listen to them, why is that an important piece of verse one? It's an important piece because God doesn't judge on a curve. He judges on the basis of his revealed commandments. Given to Israel, we get to overhear them as Christians and apply them to ourselves as we consider our vocations in life then as Christians, we know what we need to confess before God, before the pastor, or silently during the common general confession at the beginning of divine service. It takes away a temptation to hypocrisy. Well, at least I'm better than him. I'm better than her. No, that's not how this works. It also I think, gives us comfort in it helps the Christian take away the temptation to despair because we know God is faithful and just and we are to confess our sins to him and he will forgive us in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He does that work of saving. We do not. If we claim that's, there's a part of us that's still good enough to say a prayer to ask Jesus into our heart or to ask for grace or whatever different variations in world religions and even some parts of Christianity do. Then we call David and the Holy Spirit a liar in Psalm 14, verse 1. There is no one who does good, and that includes Christians. That includes pastors, too. And so as we look at that, you make a connection to Romans 3, which, you know, quotes this and it looks at this, um, maybe not word for word, but it, it says the same thing as in Romans chapter 3, when Paul's laying out an argument of the need of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So what, what connections can you make there? Well, Paul in Romans chapter 3 is saying, are the Jews any better off? And he says, no not even because of the Abrahamic covenant. There is none righteous. We are all under sin. Jews and Greeks, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, which is where I usually fit into the equation. We are all under the condemnation of God's law. We are all in need of grace, forgiveness, life, mercy, 
salvation. And that's where Jesus comes in. He is the answer to the lament. He is the one who comes alongside us and wipes every tear from our eyes. And in the new heaven and new earth, that is brought to its ultimate fulfillment. No more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. We will dwell with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world forever. So no one is righteous. You're not righteous because you were born into a Lutheran family. Just as Paul says, you're not righteous just because you're Jewish and you're circumcised. And God's been your God for more generations than pagan folks that have converted to Christianity. We need Jesus because, well, we're dead inside spiritually until the Lord acts upon us from the outside. As it says, we all fall short of the glory of God later on in Romans 3 yeah. and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. It really, when you read Psalm 14 in light of Romans 3, what a joy it is to say, by the way, you are no good. And we can look at that through the lens of faith and be comforted <laughs> in the midst of it. So, uh, Pastor, we, we have to take our break. Uh, we are studying and praying Psalm 14 with Pastor Paul Kane, and we will be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying and praying Psalm 14 with Pastor Paul Kane. And as I said, you know, the, the, there's only seven verses, but the first verse, we could probably spend another half an hour. We won't, we won't be, but there's a lot to unpack there, which obviously points us to our need for Jesus and also gives us Jesus. So, Pastor, in verse one, anything else you want to share before we move on? Just remember, the language is harsh, not just on those who don't believe, but on all of us, none of, none of us does good because we are, we are sinners. In Christ, we are forgiven. We are saints. The small psalm and its law does drive us to the New Testament in Romans chapter 3. That's just a great place to go after we pray Psalm 14. So let's continue to move forward. We will go to verses 2 and 3 as we continue to dig through this blessed psalm. And David continues, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside because they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
obviously there's quite a bit of repeating and it, 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 we could look at this quite terrifyingly. The Lord looks down upon us and you're like, oh my gosh, he sees everything. And I do nothing that is good. So this, once again, is a lament, but can be quite terrifying. How would you describe this so we're not completely terrified the whole time? We're blessed in Wyoming with some beautiful scenery, including some mountains. They're not like Colorado mountains, but we love them. It's pretty easy to be up on a high place and look down and see things all below you. There's some nice... Uh, lookouts on one of our highways over the mountains that hang gliders jump off of. That's the kind of view I'm thinking of. The Lord is looking down from heaven on the children of man, and he's not finding what he's looking for. He doesn't see any who act wisely. He doesn't see any who understand the way things actually are. We're our senses are clouded, as with smoke from the fog of war, is an illustration I've heard. There aren't any who seek after God, which is consistent with what the rest of Scripture says about this. They've turned aside. They're corrupt. There is a human nature that is no longer... Um, no longer having the original righteousness of God. In Lutheran theology, we talk about the image of God, and the imago Dei is the Latin term. Have to throw that in there as nice. headmaster of a classical school. I saw there, that. There are different definitions of that term. The back of the small catechism, the current synodical catechism, uses that in the sense of our original righteousness. But there is a wider sense, so it's good for us to define our terms when we encounter them and when we use them. The wider sense of Imago Dei, the image of God, has more to do with we have a lot in common with God in that we have reason and we have abilities that animals and plants and bugs and dirt do not. But still, we have misused our reason. We have misused our freedom to reject God. We have built on top of our inherited original sin from Adam and Eve, piles of our own sins, and there's all kinds of unholy interest from our day of birth going all the way back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. But to really push this home, there is none who does good, not even one, lays out that this is not hyperbole. This is not exaggeration. And David and the Holy Spirit lay it out that it's not even one. And of course, we know not David. We also have his Psalm 51, which is a great lament and appeal for a clean heart. If there is none who does good, what is the way out? And that's Jesus. He is the one who does good, capital O. Um, that God passed over former sins shows his righteousness, Paul tells us in Romans 3, so that he might be just. And don't forget this, 
the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God does the work. Jesus on the cross, the Holy Spirit in delivering the forgiveness of sins uh, in word and sacrament. So we continue to hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If we can't do it by the law and we can't, we need it given to us. And that's what Jesus does. It's definitely a very humbling psalm. Like you said, it's lament, and it brings you to your knees. Because first of all, uh, uh, that if the Lord's looking down from heaven, we kind of assume he's going to say, and I see all those fools who deny me. But in verse 3, he says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. So that moment or that slice of, of, of the pie that we try to say that I can bring to the table, he just takes it away. I mean, there's, there's like, like, wait, this is, this is me too. He's talking about me. And that's what I love. It goes from the fool to wait, I'm, I'm part of this whole gang. And I need someone from outside, like you said so beautifully, to save us. It has to come from outside of ourselves to be put into us, which we believe comes by the Holy Spirit and the, from, the, from the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. And so I, I just find it very humbling to read this, especially when my first reaction is, how dare those atheists, you know? And then to say, wait, how dare those sinners, which means me as well. Anything else, Pat? And how dare those who live contrary to God's Word? Mm. And how dare those theologians and Bible teachers who say that we have anything to offer to God? It reminds me of a cartoon, and it's a person, and they're giving their broken heart to a cartoon Jesus in the next frame. And Jesus says, you. And then he gives that sinner a new heart a very vivid picture of, of Psalm 51. Yeah. That when Lutherans encounter those who teach differently about conversion, there can be a little bit of, of confusion. But if I may, what I think is going on when, say, another group has what they call an altar call, where they ask somebody who is, feels convicted by the law by the Holy Spirit using that law to bring them to repentance. And then they're excited. They believe because the Holy Spirit has already worked in their heart. And then the nice preacher who told them the truth about the law and told them about their savior says, you come forward and pray this prayer. They're, the person's going to do that because the nice preacher told them about their savior. They haven't read all of scripture yet. They don't know, well, Psalm 14 from memory, or maybe even they've never read Romans chapter three, which is very relevant here too. What I think has already happened is if they think going forward at an altar call is a good idea and they're not doing it because of peer pressure, Jesus is already in their heart. The Holy Spirit has already worked faith in their heart. Now. We need a better biblical theology within that person's heart and mind and lips. And in, honestly, that congregation still practicing that way, because there is no one who does good, not even one. 
there's not enough good left in us to crawl out of our spiritual grave and believe in God, to even think that what he wants for us and wants us to do is good. No one who is good, not even one, but Jesus saves us. He doesn't just die on the cross for us. He delivers that forgiveness to us. He creates a new heart in us. And, and this is where, as we move forward through this, um, that's such an important beginning point because I heard someone teach where they said, if you don't see yourselves as a sinner, then there's no need for Jesus. Like if you're going to come to church and say, well, I'm not that bad of a sinner or I don't, I'm not a sinner, period, then there's no reason for Jesus to be on that cross. There's no reason for him to have to forgive your sins because you've already got it figured out and everything else, you may as well just go somewhere else to find, you know, the 10 step helps as you, the 10 step better life steps or whatever it might be, because there's no need for the cross. The cross is completely foolishness in, in that sense. Um, that's why it looks so counter the world. So the fool um, is one that thinks they have it all figured out. But for us, the foolishness of the cross is that's exactly what we need. So I, I think that's in a very, I'm, I'm thinking about different ways of teaching this now as you unpack this so wonderfully today. Anything else in the first three verses, Pastor? Remember, this is not just picking on unbelievers. This is talking about our common human condition. So let's keep moving forward. I'm going to do the next three verses, verses four through six. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Actually, I'm going to stop there, Pastor, because five, is, as you mentioned, are a little bit different. So verse four, um, he uses more stark language. I mean, David really pulls out all the punches today. They eat up my people as they eat bread. Um, this could be misinterpreted. What is he saying? It's a rhetorical question, meaning it's a question whose answer is allegedly clear just by the way it's asked. So have they no knowledge, all the evildoers? Just pause for right there and move the question mark forward. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't have enough knowledge. They don't understand the word of God. No one can understand God's word without the Holy Spirit. No one can see Jesus who's Lord except uh, by the Holy Spirit. Have they no knowledge all the evildoers, first line, add to it the last line. Have they no knowledge all the evildoers who do not call upon the Lord? No, they still don't. But what happens? They persecute people. They persecute the Lord's faithful. They refuse their obligation to worship him as their creator and the Lord of the entire universe. So God is not going to let this lawlessness go unpunished, which anticipates what is to come. But the unfaithful, the fool that we've talking about here, who denies God or is mad at God or even is sad at God and takes it out on Christians. They don't have knowledge. They 
don't know what they don't know. Is that a way we could talk about? <laughs> You're the rhetoric guy, so <laughs> you tell me. Yeah. They, uh, David makes this case that they do not. Now, I could go full classical rhetoric on you and rearrange verse 4 so I have two claims, two premises, and a final conclusion. But we'll leave it to how the Holy Spirit and David did it as a rhetorical question. They have no knowledge. So why, if I can press this in a slightly different direction, why do Christians sometimes go after non-Christian knowledge, even anti-Christian knowledge? Why do we seek out the ways of the world and imitate it, not just in our daily lives, but even redoing worship on Sunday morning in the ways of the world, which has no knowledge? Maybe that's a rhetorical question. Maybe not. Right. Right. And that's a, that, that's a great way for us to look at this, is he, he leaves us, the other shoe hasn't dropped. And as we look at verses one through three, the answer is, um, they don't, they've, for whatever reason, uh, denied what the Lord has to give and they don't call upon the Lord. And even if you would separate or make a distinction of atheist or agnostic, it's still the same reality. There's not faith in the Lord Jesus and his forgiveness won for us on the cross. And this is where. We can have a fruitful discussion, like you said. It's good for us to be able to hold to our convictions and what Scripture clearly has to say, but it still leaves us with grief. I mean, it still does for me because I have very dear friends who kind of waver of the atheistic and agnostic direction. And no matter how nice you try to say they are or no matter how kind um, they may be to us and loving and caring and so forth, it still brings that grief. And that's where I feel like in verse four, that David, the other shoe doesn't drop. And there's a reason it doesn't drop because that's where you kind of fill in with this grief where you're just like, oh my gosh, I just, I can't do anything about this. Not only can I not save myself, but I really thought I could save my friend or somebody else, which brings us to our knees and says, Lord, I give them to you once again and pray for your grace and mercy and, and the knowledge of the truth. Yeah, we as Christians, you individual listeners, you already have a Savior. That's Jesus. And he doesn't need anybody else to do that job. But we are given to be faithful. And that is where it really hurts sometimes. And we take it personally when someone rejects the message. But they're not really rejecting you, Jesus would tell you, but rejecting him and the Father who sent him. The evildoers in verse 4 really don't care. They don't care about you. They may not even care about their own life. They certainly don't care about consequences to their actions. They, they're all about satisfying their appetites, voracious, sinful, sick, at the expense of others. And then what do they feel about it? Sometimes no guilt at all, no inhibitions, no qualms. But when they do, that can be an opportunity to share both law and gospel with them. Remember, we're, we're trying to look at the world 
not just as mission opportunities, but looking at fellow sinners who need the forgiveness of sins in Jesus, that has been such a blessing to us and can be for them too. So let's move to those first, those other two verses, five and six, that bring us, like you said, a change, looking to the work of God, not our own, verses five and six. There they are all, they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord Yahweh is his refuge. There's, I mean, there's an obvious change here in five and six. And how would you describe that change? If you're listening to, listening to a song on the radio and all of a sudden it's not the same refrain, it's not the same verse, the musicians call that a bridge because we're trying to transition to the big payoff of a song. I think we've got bridge verses here in five and six. If you're singing this, which that's what it was intended by David to the choir master, You've got the same pattern maybe through one and two and three and four. And musically, we're just going to have to do something different because there's only two lines for verse five and two lines for verse six, four between the two of them. There, that basic word at the beginning of verse five is talking about verse four again. This is about the evildoers, the fools, to continue that from verse one who are behaving in situations where they could, they thought they could act with impunity, do whatever they want, crawl over anybody they want, um, stomp them down and get away with it. But now there's a consequence. They are in great terror. Why? God is with the generation of the righteous. God is with those whom he has made righteous, whom he has declared righteous by his son's sacrificial death and resurrection. And then by verse six, one of the folks that, one of the kinds of people that do get oppressed, who are eaten up, to quote from verse four again, are the poor. And here we're not talking about the poor in spirit, as Jesus would on All Saints Sunday in the Gospel lesson, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. But we're talking about the economically poor. These are folks who sometimes depend solely on God's grace and mercy and know what it means to have nothing in this world except for the promises of God in his Christ. You would shame the plans of the poor, the psalmist David is saying toward the evildoers, the fool, the one corrupt and against God. But the Lord is his refuge. This would be a great segue to a mighty fortress is our God, based off of another famous psalm, Psalm 46, which many of us sang and chanted for Reformation Day. The Lord is the refuge of all of the oppressed, whether the poor as in verse six, or those who are eaten up by the evil in verse four. The Lord is the refuge of the sinner. The Lord is the refuge of the one who 
cannot do good. The Lord is that fortress, that rock of ages that saves us from sin's guilt and sin's power in Jesus. As you look at that, how would you define who are the poor in verse six? I'm going more with an economic interpretation here, but I have heard folks echo the Beatitudes and the poor in spirit. Those that are repentant, that are sorry for their sins and want to do better, that are willing to confess their sins to those that they have sinned against, as well as to the Lord. And in times, those that see confession and absolution with their pastor is very comforting. For they hear another human being say, your sins are forgiven. Uh, go and sin no more. You would shame the plans of the poor, the line says. I love to hold on to the response. The response is that the Lord is the one who's going to rescue those who would be shamed. Um, those who would persecute Christians, even if we continue with that interpretation too. And that's where there's so many references. For example, in, in Isaiah 61, where it talks about that this servant Yahweh would come to anoint me and bring good news to the poor and the brokenhearted. We see that in Jesus in Luke 14, we see in Jesus in his life, and we see it, like you said, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we have this wonderful connection of you have the economic poor that clearly the Lord has um, um, great compassion on, which is why the church has historically been the place that has taken care of the poor. I mean, throughout the history right. of Christianity, it's, it's who we are. And at the same time, you see in the, in the early church, Paul is, they said, hey, you go do your ministry just as long as you, uh, you know, take care of the poor. And he said, sure, this is Galatians. And so there's, there's that great connection there. And it begins with, there's none who does good, not even one. So even if you don't necessarily see this as the poor, how can it not but yet have us at, look to have mercy upon the poor? Um, because we know that we are poor <laughs> in our spirit and the Lord has blessed us and he is our refuge. And there, therefore, we extend that, that mercy to the poor as well. Um, and so Isaiah I, 61 passage is great to tie in here. Yeah. Um, even as powerful as Romans chapter, or Romans chapter 3 has been for us, we get to the year of the Lord's favor and the Lord's fulfillment of Isaiah 61 and Psalm 14, verses 6 and 7, that's coming, in Jesus in the year of the Lord's favor, in the time of the Lord's favor, in that ministry of Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king, he does the job. He does all that the Lord has promised. He is our refuge. So let's, we have about five minutes left, actually about four minutes left in our time, Pastor. So let's do verse seven, and then we can wrap around and go through some themes that we want to end our time. Verse seven. He brings it together as David always does in the Holy Spirit. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord Yahweh rest, restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. 
Now, in verse 7, I found this interesting that this isn't like verse 4 where it ends with a, a question mark. It doesn't say, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, question mark. It's an exclamation point. Is there anything to that or other, or other thoughts you have on this verse? Well, we've got the O, the O-H at the beginning of the line, which the translator is trying to tell us that this is an opportunity to rejoice, to be happily surprised, and to exult before the Lord. There's a difference between the O-H at the beginning of a hymn title and an O. The, those who put together Lutheran service book were very, very careful about that difference between the vocative O letter and the O-H expression that we have going on here. Why is there such joy, such surprise, such gladness of heart? Well, think about how oppressed and victimized the true Israel has been, God's faithful people, the faithful remnant throughout history, even up to the time of David. And we've got our eyes on the rest of scripture where the Lord has revealed even more of that story, the Babylonian captivity and the return and Israel reduced to one human being in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation for Israel has come out of Zion, Jesus, the Christ. When the Lord restores the fortunes of, of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So the time has come. To borrow from Galatians, the time has fully come. And Jesus is that Savior. He is the salvation of Israel coming out of Zion. And Jacob, Israel, both names for the same man, and by extension, his descendants. We can rejoice. We can be glad because we have been uh, bodied and blooded together with faithful Israel. We have been grafted in, to borrow from more of Paul, the the church is all of faithful Israel and outside of Israel brought together into one new man. And so we rejoice. And so we rejoice. So pastor, we have about a minute left. How would you summarize this, this blessed Psalm as we have been, um, uh, mining the depths of the riches and, 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 uh, encourage us with this Psalm this morning. I would encourage everyone to continue to see it as a prayer, as a dear part of the prayer book of the church that our Lord Jesus himself prayed, and he still prays for his church. Also see it as a dear hymn of the church. It was meant to be sung, and there are lots of different ways to sing uh, a or chant the psalms. Use it as an opportunity to pray for those outside the church and those near and dear to you that have fallen away. Pastor Paul Kane of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Sheridan, excuse me, Wyoming, helping us to pray and study this morning in Psalm 14. Pastor Kane, thank you for bringing us his gifts. Thank you very much. God bless your day. Saints of our Lord, keep praying.
It is our Lord Jesus who gives us this psalm to remind us that salvation has come for Israel out of Zion, which obviously points us to Christ. Exclamation point. There is the rejoicing. It is all in him. Let us rejoice as the people of Israel. Let us rejoice as his people, and may we rest in his grace. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.